Amen. You may be seated. And thank you again to our music team and their ministry uh, leading us. And we invite you again, as always, if you would like to be a part to help us and to use your gifts that God's given you or to just raise your voice. We're in Mark chapter 10. I'm picking up. I don't usually watch uh, messages. And uh, I know for many, many years I've shared the story Christie's had to put up with a lot of me in the office um, over the years. You may not believe that to be true, but she does the websites and the updates and the things that are going out and the videos, and now Tim and all them are posting the sermons and the videos, and I can honestly tell you uh, I have never watched a complete message or service of our church. It wasn't until long ago that I got back that I had even gotten on the website and started reading through the different things that our church has on the website. I'm just not that person. I I don't like to hear myself. I've never watched favorite preachers. I don't have tapes of people that I listen to all day. But this past week, I wanted to make sure David wasn't preaching my text, so I logged on. And uh, no, he told me up front he wouldn't, but I thought, well, let me just see. So I did watch long enough. I will confess, I turned it on, I watched, I thought Zach did a great job. So all who want Zach to preach next week, raise your hand. That's the way it goes. You see that? You're in, Zach. But uh, (laughs) Zach waves back there. But uh, no, I appreciate David filling in and helping. It's always a blessing. And for all of you, uh, while we're out. But I'm picking back up in Mark where we left off, and I I felt caught in the middle for when we left over last time. It was right before the whole plan of salvation comes to be, and Jesus has been working with his disciples. They're finally catching a glimpse that they are unable, that they don't have what it takes, and that anybody that comes to Jesus realizes that they too need more than what they have within themselves. There's something that has to be given to them. There's something that must be done different, and Jesus has been speaking to them about discipleship over and over again, but discipleship is a part of salvation. And here in Matthew chapter 10, we realize that as Jesus moves from the rich young ruler, he moves directly into what he normally does as an application for the disciples. In other words, what he says in a nutshell is, don't think that I'm just talking about the problem the rich people have. Because that problem extends to you, the disciples, who claim to be my followers. And so we must understand a little bit of background about what's happening and why it is that we want to speak today about what matters most to you. Because in being a disciple of Jesus Christ and following him has to be what matters most to you or it will never work out. 1 John 2.19 makes it clear to us that those who went out from us were because they were never really what? Of us. There are so many people, and you know that. As a minister, I see it probably more regularly from the front, but there are people that come and go all the time. It's a hard ministry for a session to see the so many families that say they want to join the church and be a part of the church, and they spend the efforts in reaching out and bringing these people in to be a part of the church. And as you know as well as I do, within weeks, what happens? You ask yourself a year later, where are the people that came so eagerly to be with Christ? 
Where are these people that wanted so severely to have change in their hearts and to come to the Lord? And where are these people? Jesus looks at his disciples and puts them on the spot. Because what really matters when it comes to salvation is what matters most to you. Do you or do you not want to spend eternity with the Father in heaven? If you do, there has to be some changes. Now, the key in verse 24, I'm going to read these to you for a minute, and I'll give you some highlights, is to understand the background of what he's asking us to do. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Right after the teaching of the rich young ruler, we get it in the text where it says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. I'll explain that in a minute, the difference of the words. You won't see that in English. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus responded again, saying to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're following along this morning in a King James or a New King James, one of the older manuscripts based on newer text, it's a whole division we could talk about, you could probably look into the margins of your Bible and it will show you that there's an extension that says how hard it is for those who trust in riches. This is where Mark is headed all along. The later manuscripts that didn't have that simply say that it is hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard is it? Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and have followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now, in the present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Boy, to understand the text, I hope this morning, just to give you a few uh, noteworthy points that will help you make sense of what it is that matters most to us and why it is that Jesus is confronting his disciples. It's not just about the wealthy and the poverty. I'll give you some terms in a minute. It's not just saying that it's hard or that a rich person can't be in heaven. And this is not a sermon to be based on tithing. So please relax. And I'm not going to ask you or pass the plate a second time as we go around. But what I do want you to realize is that what applies to the rich must be kept in context that applies to all of us. What matters most is that we're not just talking about the rich versus the poor. Now, many writers will give you examples in the scriptures of what makes a person poor. There are many reasons why a person can be poor. Sadly to say, 
One of those reasons, which is probably the most common in America today, is there are people who believe others are poor simply because they're lazy. That if they would just get out and work, they would have stuff. That anybody who wants to work could go to work and have everything they would ever want. Misnomer, but true, there's this understanding that you are poor because you're lazy. The other one is because you're poor because of calamity. I can relate to that. I remember the story very clearly. In 2001, when my mother was hit with a meningioma brain tumor, and my wife and I took on everything that she had and every debt that she had owned and everything that she was a part of from her house on down was taken from her, and we had spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for a surgery to try to keep her alive. She wasn't poor because she was lazy. She was poor because she was beset with a brain tumor that changed her life forever. And we thank the Lord she's alive, though poor at this time. But there's also those who are poor, not just because of being lazy or calamity, but because they've been exploited. There are those that are poor because every time they get a leg up, somebody else takes advantage of them. Somebody else sees what they have and that they can charge a little more interest or borrow a little bit more for them or charge a little bit higher. And so as soon as they start getting a leg up, people start taking a little bit more because they deserve they should have it. And these people are being exploited and charged exuberant amounts of things because we can. We live in a world today that has taught us if you're good at something, you can charge more. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But, oh, we must be careful that it doesn't exploit those that truly need the same performance but can't have it. And finally, we get to the point in Scripture where we realize there are those that are poor because they chose to put Christ in righteousness first. And they've lived their life in what others would call poverty because they sought to put every effort into the kingdom and to his righteousness rather than themselves. So that's the context. The context is that Jesus turns to his disciples in the first few verses and simply tells them, write this down, what matters most to you, first we must deal with your possessions. That's what it's all about. That's what he says in these first few verses. It's the possessions that matter. God truly does care about what we trust in. And he truly does care about what he entrusts us with. Those become important decisions in life. When we realize that our possessions can be treated just like the wealthy in their possessions. You don't have to be wealthy. Owned all kinds of land, which is a word that is used here in verse 22 when it talks about the one who has been translated owned much property. The difference between the one who owns property, katamata, and the person who has liquid money, if you wish, kromata, is the difference in one letter. It's the difference in one letter in Greek is the one that describes the one who owns property and the one who has what we would call liquid money, the ability to go and to do things with. And that's who Jesus addresses when he comes to this part of the story. He's addressing those with a liquid wealth that is now a danger to their faith because now that they have something that they can use and use it regularly and to use it however they want to, they are no longer faced with decisions about whether or not God wants them to or whether or not they can afford to. 
And so what happens is we find ourselves in a place where we now do the things we want to do because we have the ability to do them whether or not God wants us to do them or not. We're no longer following what it is God wants us to do. It's easy to be caught in the trap of just doing what we want to do. That's the context. What matters most to you? He turns to his disciples and says, for the rich man, it was his possessions. He went away saddened because he was unable to get rid of or to be able to hand over the things that mattered most to him. And so the moral of the story in the first few verses when it comes to the wealth that we have is not speaking about how much you have, but that the much you do have, is it more important to you than the Lord, than serving Jesus Christ? We don't have to own everything to have possessions first. For some of you, it's your car. It's the one thing you've always wanted. It's the one thing you've planned out. And you'd be willing to give up just about anything else, but don't touch my car. If you're more in my linkings of likings, then you're probably saying, don't touch my tractor. My toy, don't touch the things that I love most. For some of you, it may be something in the house, the relics that you've had, the the pictures that have been painted, the things that you've been given. It doesn't matter what they are. They're all called possessions. And when possessions take priority, they become an endangerment to your faith. You have to ask yourself this morning, just what really matters most to me? Ask yourself that question, and I wonder if the words, whatever it takes to follow Jesus Christ, comes first. If that doesn't come first, then you're in danger along with his disciples. Because that's what should matter most. Anything that's causing us to lose what we just learned about in the previous chapters, about having this childlike understanding before Jesus Christ, a a helpless and a hopelessness that we need him or anything that would endanger us from coming close to him. He uses the analogy that many would interpret even as a rope rather than a camel for it's the distinguish in some of the texts that it would be harder to put a camel or a rope through the eye of a needle. That's the danger we face. Now, I'll tell you honestly, there are many stories out there, and for years, people have talked about the small gate on the east side that's lower than the others, and camels could be lowered, and folks, you know the story as well as I do, but I'll give you a bit of a hint. It's never been in literature until about the ninth century. There's no hint of any of that in the gates and the walls and the things of our history of the first century. It just seems to indicate that what Jesus is taking is a common analogy and saying to these people to try to fit something larger through a hole that is smaller is obviously what? Impossible. To say that the eye, the camel through the eye doesn't really work because folks, you could, you could lower the camel, you could get him on his knees and you could go through the lower part of the gate and you could get through the eye of the needle and that misses the whole point of the story because who can get saved on their own abilities? Who has it within themselves to be able to accomplish what God's put before us? The whole analogy is that what he's trying to say to us is that our possessions bring an endangerment to our faith because just like a camel who could somehow get through the gate, we truly believe that somehow even with all of our possessions first, 
we can still make it to heaven. And so all of a sudden, the disciples find themselves asking the questions. Listen to what he says. He responds to them, children, how hard it is. He used the word technon for those of you who like studying. It's very familiar. It's only in Mark there. It's a whole different word than paideia for the children that we're talking about coming to Jesus. It's more of a personal endearment term. And he says to them, listen, guys, come on now. My children, you claim to follow me. Now listen to me. It is hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then they said this, well, then if that's the case, how can anyone be saved? The astonishment is the same word that we've already said before that has been used. It's this understanding that when the rich man left astonished with Jesus because, hey, how do I have to give up everything? That's just, I'm amazed that you would ask that. The disciples are saying the same thing. In other words, the disciples are responding the same way the rich man did in their same actions to the same questions. They're no different than the one who was told he couldn't be saved, and they're responding in the same way. They're no different. And so it's not just about our possessions. Verse 26 reminds us when it comes to what matters most in salvation, it also deals about our possibility. Listen to what he says. They were astonished in looking, said to Jesus, with people it is impossible, but with God it's not. All things are possible. And we use that verse in all kinds of ways, do we not? We'll take that into every context there is, and if you're working on something or need something, we'll just simply tell someone, don't worry, all things are what? possible with God. And that is true. But folks, the context is in the midst of a story of what it takes to be saved. It is impossible for you to be able to do what it takes to be right with God and to be in a right relationship with him. It is impossible for you to have whatever it is that you have to be considered worthy enough to grant you access through the gates of heaven. It is impossible on human merit alone to be able to spend eternity with the Father. It is impossible. The only possibility we have is to have what God the Father gives us. And it is only in his grace and his strength. The whole plan of salvation could be spelled out here. I won't give it to you all. But we realize very quickly that it comes by grace, through faith. And it is a gift from who? God. Not only what God requires of us, he also enables us to do it. He would never ask of us to do something he would not equip us to do. That's the importance of living by prayer. There's all kinds of things you may do in life because you want to do them. Your own pastor has fallen prey many a times, especially in church planting and trying to grow churches to do things that the pastor thinks that I know God could do this and I know God could use this. And if we would just do this, he could bless it and the church could grow and do that. And you find yourself doing all the things that you think would be great for the Lord and a great cause. That doesn't mean that's what God wants. I told you the story many a times about the young pastor who grew his church from 1,500 to 300. And it became the strongest church he ever pastored. They did more for missions. They did more for service. They did more for fellowship, more for the community, because they had 300 people committed. And what mattered most to them was that they were serving Jesus Christ no matter the cost. And today I look around at the so many churches that are hundreds and hundreds. 
and aren't doing anything but feeding themselves. Impossible to do it without him. You must have it. Now, what makes it possible? How, why is it possible? If you are wealthy here this morning, thank you. I appreciate your wealth. I appreciate all that you do for our communities. I appreciate the support that you give, the hard work that you've put into it. But rich people don't go to heaven just because they're what? Yeah, see, you knew the answer to that. The problem, but there is the possibility. My encouragement to you is no different than it came to the disciples. It's not impossible with God. You could be here this morning and realize that you have not been faithful with what God has given you. You have not been entrusted in a good way, or I mean you haven't been faithful with what's been entrusted to you in a good way. There are many opportunities you look back and say, I could have helped so many others, and I could have made so much difference, and I could have changed that community, and I could have helped those families. As I look back over time, as many would do, join me as I visit those who are on their last moments. Come with me, those of you who've been there before the last breaths are taken. And you start hearing things like this, Pastor, I just never did enough for the Lord. I wish I had time to do so much more. You know, if the Lord could just get me through this, I promise I'll be a whole different person. It's amazing how many times we get to the end in hope that there's just an opportunity we can pay one big sum and have it all worked out at the end. It's impossible. But with God, it's possible. Even if you don't help others. Even if you're not able to go back in time. It's possible because God gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us a spirit that convicts us. He gives us what is necessary to deep, deep, dig down deep within our hearts and to perform a surgery that no one else could do, to reach down in and pull that heart out and to change it and to remake it and to soften it and to stick it back in and to change us in such a way that now we desire to follow Christ. And what matters most to us is that we want to be with Christ. And sometimes it does take calamity. Sometimes it takes an event in your life in which that's the only way God could get control of your heart. He was seeking you, loving you, after you. The Bible makes it clear there are none that seek God, no, not one. It is God who seeks us. And with God, it is possible because he comes to us, he seeks us, he never gives up on us. And as his child, as the chosen service, as pro Arizo, the one who was predestined and foreordained, it is not going to stop until he has broken you down, opened you up, changed your life. And when you wake back up, the very next thing you realize is nothing else matters but Christ. If you're here this morning and your possessions still matter most. I would give you the same instruction Jesus gave the rich young ruler. Get rid of it. It would be better to enter the kingdom of heaven with even one hand, with even one eye, or even without all the parts, and to be in the place God has prepared for you than to let your possessions ruin you.
It's impossible to do it on your own. How do we know that? Jesus looks to them. He says that when he looks to them. Verse 27, circle that word, looking at them. That's that same word from the Greek word in blepo. It's the word that means he intently looks at them. He knows their hearts. He's looking beyond them. It's not just looking at them and saying, hey, what's going on around me? He's looking within them. And he realizes what they're thinking, what their thoughts are. And that they're actually going to come out and say, finally, what matters most. Well, then wait a minute. If they can't be saved, who can? What they really should have said was this. Well, then have we missed it too? How do I know I'm saved? Oh, if I had a handful of coins for every time in the years of serving ministry that I could have said to someone to give them the comfort when they ask, how do I know, pastor, if I'm saved? Well, I don't know. But I do know it's an endangerment to your faith if you're not putting God first. Whatever else needs to go, the possibility is there. He can accomplish his word in you. Possessions are not what it matters. The possibilities with God. But he goes a little step further. Look at verse 28 when he tells us that Peter, we all know Peter, he's the one that jumps up front every time, front and center, has the answers to everything, speaks first, inserts foot later. That's what Peter does. And he jumps up and he says, but we've done that. We've obviously left everything behind. So then you wonder, okay, Peter, what's the problem? Why are you still concerned? What have you truly left behind? Where are you truly in following me? See, now we get to this point that's called the promises that come with discipleship and salvation. Listen to what he says. He says, listen, truly I say to you, verse 29, there is no one who has left. Now catch this, folks. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, farms, fields, every translation does it. It's all the places you find these personal relationships that matter most. He picks the places of the things that matter most to you, and he says, there's no one who disregards these in the sense of putting them back and puts me first that is not going to be blessed. Folks, those aren't Jerry's words. Those are whose? Those are his words. There is a blessing in giving up the worldly gain in order to be poor for the righteousness of Christ. I had a pastor one time that said, if you're not poor, it's because you're not following Christ close enough. I thought about that for a while because I felt pretty poor. I don't know about you, but I started out very wealthy in seminary. I was single, didn't have a family to feed, hired in my first church full time out of seminary, went down to outside of South Carolina looking at churches and took an associate job in North Carolina, and they offered me $21,500. Yeah, I was going to heaven. I was rich. I mean, I I had it, I'm telling you. Now I look back at that and I realize, well, wait a minute. After I'd been there a few years and realized what everybody else was making, I thought, wait a minute. This isn't right. Folks, we compare ourselves based on our possessions and what we have. But listen to the promises that comes 100 times. Now, I promise you, I don't want to have 100 more children. 
My wife probably wouldn't like that either. But we're talking about the family of God. We're talking about the blessings within the church. We're talking about how God's family multiplies all the blessings that come. I can tell you that there are people in just about every state that I could call on to go stay with. We've planted churches in many places. We've been through the college uh, avenues with many of my friends. They've grown up and moved around the world. It's amazing how the Christian family has provided opportunity to where even when we left our home, I am so thankful for so many of you. You may not realize it, but to my children, you became grandparents. To my children, you became new brothers and sisters. To my children, you became the friends they needed. A hundred times over when we would just be faithful to follow Christ. Oh, but to hang on and to re resent not getting those promises. You see, the sacrifice does not even compare to what it is that he promises that we're going to receive. That's what he's trying to tell the disciples, the reward of eternal life. It's not just this life. If you were to read the Greek, it actually says that when he puts all this together, we'll receive the blessings in the present age. That's what the New American Standard says, in this time and also in the next time. The blessings go beyond what your possessions can offer you. Folks, believe it or not, what you hold most dear to your life, what you hold most dear, maybe all you ever wanted in this life, but it will go nowhere with you where? In the next. And that's why I think two things are important. You can leave the fathers, mothers, children's farms, thanks. But catch this and highlight this. You'll receive a hundred times houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's, and farms. But have you noticed what's been left out? There's no fathers. Because when you leave those earthly fathers behind, you leave them to follow the one father that will never be replaced. There are not to be many fathers. There's one. And fathers, I can only encourage you as people did me. Fathers, raise your children to find their father because there will be no one else to take that place that will take them to the next life so that you can be with them if you truly love them most. They must find their father. And yes, then comes the last thing, persecution. To think that you can follow Christ and it'd be easy. Oh, you've got another thing coming. If the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate you. It's not the place to just lay back and ask, why me, Lord? I gave up everything. That's what Peter's saying. Why me, Father? I gave up everything, and I still have to be sick. I still have to lose my children. I still have to go through car wrecks, deaths, diseases, cancers, dismemberments. I still have to be treated this way. I still have to be disregarded by others. But I left everything for you. 
or maybe you really didn't. You're still hanging on to what you think is the priority. And that's verse 31. Yes, it's our possessions. It's possible with God. There are promises and there's persecution, but listen to this. The first will be what? Last. It's the priorities. The discipleship of following Christ takes everything that we thought was important and turns it upside down. And what we thought meant the most, now we realize doesn't mean anything. What we thought would get us to heaven, we realize now doesn't work. But what matters most is that when we give it all up in the world's eyes and are told that we're going to be last, it's when he promised us that we're going to be what? First. We're going to be with him. And at this point, we come to commune with the Father and we realize wherever you are with your possessions, and maybe with even thinking about the impossibility of what it is God wants to do. Or maybe even to the point where, hey, you don't even think you've gotten all the promises yet. Or maybe the persecution is too much. What it really comes down to is this. What's the priority? What matters most to you? And that's what we want to commune with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to commune together, we want you to be first. We want you to forgive us, to cleanse us, to restore within us a righteousness that reflects what you are in us. Let us realize that it is impossible on our own works and our own abilities, but with you, with your Holy Spirit, with the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, with your plan put before us, what felt like being last, we realized, makes us first. And I want to be first with you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, I remind those of you who are here, as we take the Lord's Supper, it's not something that we do to be saved. It's for those who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're visiting with us and you have made that profession of faith in Christ, you'll have been a part of a church, a biblical understanding of discipline and what it means to be baptized and to be a member of the church and we encourage you to reflect on that. You're welcome to take with us if that is true in your heart. I would also encourage you that to be plugged into the membership of a church. People always say, well, what's the use of membership? Folks, it's the sign of what Jesus asked us to do. It's one of the 100-fold blessings that come when we follow Jesus Christ. So maybe this morning you pray about that where it is that you need to be plugged in, baptized, make the profession of faith, whatever it is, I invite the officers to come with us as we prepare, because I'm going to go straight to the Lord's Supper as part of the service. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward. And I want to read this part right here in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as he broke that body and gave thanks, 
he now encourages us to take that which we will pass, to take a piece and hold it until we can all take together. In your bulletin, we're going to read the first part through the chorus, and then we will take together as we do. But please, as we pass it out, follow along in the bulletin as we sing the Lord's Supper. Take a moment and just pray as they finish passing it out. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we take and pass out the cup, I ask that you please hold the cup until we can all take together. And in the meantime, while they're passing it out, we will take and sing the rest 
of the song that is there in your bulletin. the new covenant, my blood for you, as often as you do it this drink. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we commune here on this earth, 
It's only in awaiting the promise of true fulfillment when we will commune with you at that great Lord's banquet where we will receive all that you promised us as we've endured the persecution and realized it was all because of you. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you'd stand with me as we sing together our closing hymn, Jesus, I my cross have taken. You'll see it there in your bulletin. Before I give you the benediction, let me request if you're available. We've had several that are not able to be here this morning that are called in or are out, and so we need help in our preschool classroom. Amanda will be teaching, but we could use an assistant. So if you're available, please go downstairs and check and make sure she has someone there to help her so we can teach this morning. But if you receive the benediction, and may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. And all God's children said, amen. Have a great Lord's Day.